0: thank you so much um thank you for having me and uh thanks for coming to this webinar Um, i'm going to talk about some dubious fda drug approvals and maybe a little bit about real world evidence at the end and so um it's true i work here at ucsf i'm a practicing hemonc doc i attend two days a week and i do about three months of service and i'm going to be rounding very soon in the va right after this all right so In this talk, I hope to cover a few themes, and I'm happy to take questions at any time or at the end, as you prefer. I'm going to talk about the control arm that's increasingly used in studies for drug approval, and what happens if the control arm is not what we would otherwise do in our practice. Uh, We're going to talk about endpoints used for drug approval. We're going to talk about dropout or censoring, which is an increasing problem in some studies submitted to the FDA, and we'll talk about real-world evidence. I thought I'd kick this off with um, a couple stories. So these are two stories, uh, but they're emblematic of, I think, broader problems, as I hope to show you. I remember the day, July 25th, 2019, and I opened the New England Journal of Medicine, and I saw this paper called Maintenance Olaparib for Germline BRCA-mutated metastatic pancreas cancer. That's a lot there. But I remember, of course, germline BRCA mutations. That's what people like Angelina Jolie suffer from. Of course, they can cause breast cancer, prostate cancer, but they can also cause pancreas cancer, very rarely. And there are people with BRCA mutations in the germline that have pancreas cancer. They typically get it a little bit earlier than the average pancreas cancer patients, and um, they are treated more aggressively, typically. And here I'm reading about maintenance olaparib. Maintenance, I don't even know what that means in pancreas cancer because we are always treating these patients, unfortunately. They pass away so quickly. Olaparib is a $12,000 a month AstraZeneca medicine. So the article piqued my interest. $12,000 a month medicine used for maintenance, I'm not sure what that means in this cancer, because there's no break from treatment, in this particular genetic mutation. And then my inbox, immediately I looked in my email, and I see this is what was there, an article from Stat. It says, forget controversy, AstraZeneca's dynamic duo wants to dominate the market for cancer drugs. And this is the quote from the article about this study. It's unbelievable, said Baselga. It validates the principle that we've been fighting for all these years, that even the most difficult disease, even the disease where you think you're not going to win, if you find the genetic vulnerability, if you find that, then those giants, they crumble. And I thought, wow, that's a powerful quote. The giants are crumbling. Wow. Uh, okay, I mean, I'm going to read, the, I got to read this article. And this is, of course, a picture of me and Baselga, who unfortunately passed away a year ago, but this is from AACR a couple of years ago. I also saw that the University of Chicago, where the PI of this study works, issued this press release. The press release says POLO is a new standard of care for pancreas cancer. And then she writes, when we saw the progression-free survival data, my first reaction was a little scream of joy. We finally made real progress in the treatment of a subset of patients with advanced pancreatic cancer. So now I'm definitely interested. Scream of joy. Um, the giants are crumbling, you know, this has got to be good. So what, what exactly happened in this trial? So, you know, I always tell people whenever I read an article, I never read it cover to cover. I mean, if I'm having trouble sleeping, then I'll read it cover to cover. But usually what I do is I have questions in my mind and I try to find the answer in that article. And so I always ask myself, what did they do? I want to be able to explain to somebody if I met you at a dinner party and you asked me, you know what that, what the heck happened in polo? I want to be able to tell you what they did. The next question I ask, is the control arm what you would do in your practice? Then I ask, what's the primary endpoint? Is it clinical or surrogate? And what about other measures, activity or efficacy? Does it tell a story? So let's look through this paper. So what did they do? This is the POLO study. They took patients with mutations in germline BRCA, so they you know they have these BRCA mutations, and they have pancreas cancer. I could told you they're younger than the average age. They have this unfortunate condition. They may be 10% of all pancreas cancer patients. And they gave him the standard of care therapy for four months, which is a platinum-based therapy for 16 weeks. And if your tumor didn't get bigger, if it was the same size or smaller, you were eligible for this study. And you were randomized, of course, three to two skewed randomization for olaparib versus placebo or sugar pill. So that's the study. We took these patients, make sure they could get four months of therapy under their belt, and then if their tumor wasn't bigger, they get randomized three to two, to novel, costly drug or sugar pill. And we measure progression-free survival and overall survival. We're going to come to that. So the first question I always ask myself, is the control arm what you would do in your practice? And I thought to myself, would I typically take a patient with pancreas cancer who's younger than the average age, and after giving them four months of chemotherapy, just say, you know, your disease isn't worse, so we're just going to stop all therapy and put you on a sugar pill, or just observe you? And the answer is, of course, I would never do that, because I'm not the worst oncologist on planet Earth. I'm a good oncologist. And what a good oncologist would do is actually continue to treat them. There's never been a precedent for stopping treatment in somebody who's doing well on treatment. You would give him at least two more months of all of those drugs put together, the platinum triplet, usually fulfirinox. And then if you were really facing toxicity, I would remove the uh, oxaliplatin, but I would continue the 5-FU. I would never stop the drugs. So already I have a problem with this study because we're testing stopping something that should not be stopped, that has never been stopped, that no doctor would stop outside of this study. That, to me, is a problem. So the control arm, not what I would do. And I think, I always say, a clinical trial can only change your practice if the control arm is your practice. And here it's not my practice, it's beneath my practice. <clears throat> I started to ask myself, you know, somebody said, well, you know, they got four months of therapy. And realistically, four months of therapy is about all these patients can get. And they cited the original paper that justified Fulfirinox, that chemotherapy backbone, against gemcitabine. And indeed, they have a point. The median number of treatment cycles of this platinum, um, you know, triplet therapy was 10. Ten and the cycles are every two weeks. So that's only five months of therapy. And after all, they gave four months here. It's practically the same thing. And so what their point is, is like, look, we're giving people a pretty good amount of chemotherapy and comparable to the various study that justifies the use of the chemotherapy in the first place. But of course, there was a problem because this study, this study enrolled everybody when they were diagnosed with pancreas cancer, but POLO only enrolled people who hadn't had the tumor grow in the first four months of therapy. Because this study enrolled people in whom the tumor immediately grew. So this study is enrolling, on average, worse patients. And so actually you can go to the Kaplan-Meier curves and you can look to see how many people would have progressed in the first four months who would have been ineligible for the POLO study and remove those people because they obviously got less treatment on average, they could only have gotten it until they progressed, and, av- and try to figure out how much treatment did the people who got at least four months of therapy get. And I, and I calculate that to be seven months. So in other words, you took people who could and would have gotten seven months of treatment, by the way, 10 years earlier when we did this study, and you gave them only four months of treatment. So you're missing three months. So now it's starting to be more than one. It's starting to add up. You know, you're missing about half the treatment they could have gotten and should have gotten. But then I realized one more thing. Actually, this calculation, it's not exactly right, because this study enrolled anybody with pancreas cancer And not just people with that mutation, who, as I've said twice already, are younger and healthier on average than the average pancreas cancer patient. What would be the duration of treatment in those patients? And I won't bore you with how I calculated it, but I think it should be much, much higher. It should be the top 20th percentile of fulfirinox. It should be 12 months or more. In other words, the patients on POLO trial who get assigned to the control arm would probably have been getting a year of chemotherapy on average. They're only getting four months before they're randomized to sugar pill. So that's a lot of chemotherapy they're not getting. Not just a little, it's a lot. It's a big setback, if you ask me, and I'm going to prove that to you. So whenever I read an article, I I ask, like, what did they do? So they took these people with this unique germline mutation. They gave them four months of therapy. If your tumor didn't get worse, you could be enrolled in this study. Three to two randomization. We could talk about in the Q&A why we're doing skewed randomization. Three to two randomization. $12,000 a month medication or sugar pill. Is the control arm what you would do in practice? The answer is absolutely not. Uh, control arm is not what I would do in practice. I think it's actually a dereliction of a doctor's duty to stop all treatment, especially in somebody who probably could have gotten eight more months of treatment as I've uh, tried to make the case for you. What, was the, what, did actually, what did we improve? What was the primary endpoint of the study? Let's look at that. This was the primary endpoint of the study. This is the Kaplan-Meier curve that, that is the giant's crumbling. This is the little scream of joy you heard about earlier. And what you see here rather clearly is that there is a difference between these two curves. This is the time until progression-free survival events, PFS. I'm going to tell you what that is in a minute. And there's the old saying in oncology, if you can fit a laser pointer between the curves, you can give the plenary session at the national meeting. And here you can fit at least three or four laser pointers between these curves. This is a big result. Hazard ratio 0.53. I don't even know what that means, but that's good. Median is improved from 3.8 to 7.4 months. Olaprib is definitely defeating sugar pill here in PFS. Is that a clinical or surrogate endpoint? I mean, is it something that people intrinsically care about that matters to people, like living longer, living better? Or is it a surrogate or a stand-in for those things? As my colleague likes to say, a surrogate endpoint is an endpoint that the patient didn't know was important until the doctor said it was. And so I think you have to know what PFS is to know which one it is. So let me tell you what PFS is. Whenever we do these studies, we scan somebody at baseline and we measure at least three lesions, which we call the target lesions. And they have a diameter, they have a cross-sectional area, and they have a certain volume. And progression-free survival is a time-to-event endpoint. It could not happen at time zero. It can only happen over time. And it's the time until one of four things happens, whichever comes first. First thing that could happen is the patient dies. That's the survival part of it, and it's not good. Hopefully it doesn't happen, but it could. That's the part of the PFS event. The next thing that could happen is there are new lesions on the scan. The lungs had nothing in them. Now you've scanned them again and they're full of innumerable nodules. That's not good, and that's a progression event. The next thing that could happen is that the tumor gets bigger. But how much bigger? Well, until the diameter crosses 120%, it is stable disease. Once it's 121%, it's progression. Do cancer patients walk around and they say, ah, you know, Doc, I'm feeling good. I'm at 118%. And then the next day, I'm 122%. I feel terrible. And the answer is no. This cutoff is very arbitrary. And I'm going to show you where it comes from. And that gives you a sense of why this is a surrogate endpoint. Because the cutoff is arbitrary, the endpoint is not a metric of how people feel or function. The third thing that could happen is the tumor shrinks. And if it shrinks more than 30%, that's considered a response. And here, if it grows, we look at 20% growth from the smallest it ever was, the nadir value, and that is considered progressive disease. <clears throat> so progression-free survival is the time until one of four things happen. The patient dies, there's new lesions, the tumor just steadily keeps getting bigger, and then you cross the Rubicon, or it gets smaller. And if it gets smaller, it's 20% growth from the smallest it ever was. So which one, whichever one of these four comes first, that's the end point. So I think that's a surrogate endpoint, and that's what we've improved here. What about other measures? So let's think about this. So we random, we gave people some medicine. Their tumor didn't get bigger, 20% bigger. And then we put them on Olaparib, $12,000 a month AstraZeneca medicine, or placebo. Uh, we improved PFS. What about survival? What about tumor shrinkage? What, what do we see? The first thing I noticed, the response rate. The response rate are the percent of people who have 30% or more tumor shrinkage. The percent of all the people who get the drug, in whom the tumor shrinks—that 30 percent or more, which I showed you on the previous slide—if you take olaparib, an anti-cancer drug that costs $12,000 a month, an inhibitor of PARP, which is involved in DNA recombination, there's a 20 percent tumor, uh, 30. There's a 20 percent, 20 percent of people have 30 percent tumor shrinkage. In other words, one in five people have the tumor shrink 30 percent or more. If you take sugar pill. It's 10%. That number really jumped out at me. You know, I'm a cancer doctor, and people always ask me about sugar and cancer, and I never know what to tell them. But there's one thing I do know about sugar and cancer, is that sugar pills, they don't shrink cancer. I know that. I know sugar pills don't shrink cancer, and they certainly don't shrink pancreas cancer, and yet in this study, one in 10 people have 30% or more tumor shrinkage from sugar pill. And the moment I saw that, a little a little flag went up in my mind. i got to make sense of this. Why is this happening? The next thing I look at very early when I read a paper is overall survival. I showed you the PFS on the top. I showed you you could fit three laser pointers between them. But overall survival, or how long people actually live, is on the bottom. And it was simultaneously published in the New England Journal of Medicine. And its median was 0.1, 18.9 to 18.1. It's superimposable. Overall, survival is not improved one iota. Now we have the updated follow-up for this trial, and there's no improvement in survival. End of story. This $12,000-a-month medicine cannot defeat sugar pill in people in whom the chemotherapy was inappropriately halted. That's what we're paying for here, okay? No improvement in survival. You can't fit a laser pointer between these curves. Nobody has a hand that steady. All right, so this to me is sobering. It also raises the question as to why is the primary endpoint PFS anyway? Because surrogates are useful if it takes so long to measure the real endpoint, but if you already have the measure of the endpoint that matters, why are we using the surrogate again? That's the question that may come in your mind. So how do we put these facts together? This $12,000 a month medicine, it's toxic by the way, it can cause second malignancy, has all these kind of toxicities and problems. It has a progression-free survival benefit, but no improvement in survival. And in this study, that sugar pill had a 10% response rate. Sugar pill? Shrinking a pancreas cancer? One out of 10 times? Crazy. How did it happen? Remember I told you that a response is 30%. And since I can't hear you, I assumed you said, well, that sounds arbitrary. And I said, yeah, actually it does sound arbitrary. Where does that 30% come from? The answer is 1976. 1976, this gentleman, Charles Mortel, he invited 16 oncologists over to his house. I've heard that it was a dinner party. They put a mattress on the dining table. They dropped 12 spheres on the table. They put foam rubber on top and they got busy. They started taking 1,900 measurements. In other words it's what i like to call one hell of a party it's one hell of a party it's the kind of party i want to go to oncologists partying measuring spheres through foam rubber in fact 12 solid spheres were chosen this is not a joke this is actually what they did they took two centimeters to 15 cent 14.5 centimeters in diameter and they put them on a table and they rolled out the foam rubber on top half an inch thick to approximate the skin and subcutaneous tissue and one and a half inches thick to approximate the abdominal wall This was 1976, maybe in 2023, we'd have to make it a little thicker, I don't know. And every doctor who came to the dinner party brought the ruler or caliper he employed in clinical practice. This was a gender-biased era, it was only men, and they're bringing calipers to measure marbles through foam rubber. Why the hell, why the hell are they doing this? And the answer is, since I can't hear your answer, the answer is, they don't have something we have today, and that's a CAT scan. They don't have a CAT scan, and if you don't have a CT scan, the only way you can measure somebody's solid masses is to feel their neck and feel their belly and measure with your calipers, and this is how oncologists used to do things. And Charles Mortel is making all of these doctors measure all of these marbles because he wants to know how much does a marble have to shrink before two doctors can reliably say that marble is definitely smaller than that marble. And to do this, he was very clever. He actually made tumors 5 and 6 were the same size, and tumors 7 and 8 were also the same size. Okay? So what he's doing is a very clever operational experiment. He's asking all these doctors to take all of these measurements because he wants to figure out what sort of size threshold cutoff do I need before we can reliably agree, I can agree with myself and I can agree with you, that this marble is smaller than that marble? <clears throat> and the answer is here's what he finds. How often do two different doctors think the same marble is actually different in size? It depends on the threshold you use as a cutoff. If you use a 25% bi dimensional measurement shrinkage, one in four times, we actually think the same tumor is different. That's the measurement error. But if we use a 50% bi dimensional measurement, It goes down to 7%. He likes that number because it's close to 0.05 or nominal significance. And how often does the same doctor think that the same tumor was actually different? The same, you go down to about 8%, 1 in 20 roughly. So Mortel says, let's go with 50% bidimensional shrinkage. We'll call that a response. Why? Because that's what a bunch of men in 19 diggity can feel through foam rubber with their caliper at my dinner party. That's why he picked it. This cutoff was chosen for operational reasons. It was chosen because that's what we could feel. And it was never chosen because it meant to connote efficacy. It has become synonymous with efficacy over time. Ah, but you're going to say, hey, listen, you're pulling a fast one. You said 50%. He said 50%. You're saying 30%. That's different. Something changed. And the answer is, of course, actually in the original WHO 1980 criteria, we used bi dimensional measurements of 50%, which volumetrically, I read if four-third pi r cubed is a volume of a third, the starting volume, that's a response in WHO. But when we made it resist, we simplified to measure in one dimension. In a one dimension, 30% has the same rough volumetric reduction. So actually, it is true that the current resist 1.1 cutoff is the same cutoff that Mortel envisioned in 1976. It's just one dimension, not two dimensions. That's how we do it these days. So, sobering. To me, the reason I tell you this story is just so you know, when these doctors say the cancer drug has a high response rate, that's exciting. That's a measure of drug activity that, as I'm about to show you, it rarely happens by chance alone, but it's not a measure of how how people feel or function. It was never chosen for that reason. It was chosen because that's what men could palpate through foam rubber in the 1970s. That's why we picked that cutoff. Maybe the optimal cutoff for living longer, living better is different. Maybe there is no optimal, maybe there is no number that predicts perfectly. But this, this response cutoff has a very poor correlation with survival. We know that to be true, in part because it's probably selected at totally random. Not random, it's selected for different reasons, operational reasons. So in the POLO trial, I told you that the sugar pill shrinks tumor 30 per, sorry, 10% of the time. It shrunk that tumor by Mortel's response criteria. Is that typical? Do sugar pills typically do that? Sugar? I don't know. It turns out Ian Tanock, maybe about 15, 20 years ago, this was a researcher, Princess Margaret, he did a pooled analysis of the placebo effect in oncology. He took all of the studies that gave somebody a sugar pill and he asked how often do they meet resist criteria by WHO criteria, which is Mortel criteria, which is resist criteria. And the answer was it was in 2.7% of patients. 2.7% is the measurement error of CAT scans with this criteria. So you'd expect about a 2% tumor shrinkage. But remember, in polo, they got 10%. They got 10%. Does anyone know? You can put it in the chat if you know. Why do you think this study has an exceptionally high rate of tumor shrinkage from taking a sugar pill? Any guesses? You took people with this particular mutation, pancreas cancer. You gave them four months of therapy. You stopped it, even though I've told you twice now. I would never stop it. I think that's almost criminally bad to stop it. Uh, And you give a sugar pill, and then 10% of people have the tumor shrink. Sugar pill, I don't know if anyone can put it in the chat, but if you can. Yes, somebody says, residual efficacy from the treatment they were getting before. And I think that's right. Remember, what happens is you're getting chemo. Now, a lot of people are saying yes. You're getting chemo, you have stable disease. We put a CAT scan in you. We put this line in the sand when you start the study. And then if you take Olaparib, 20% of people have 30% or more tumor shrinkage while on Olaparib. And here when you take sugar pill, it's 10% of people, which is five times as much as what you'd expect with, with uh, sugar pill from measurement error. And the answer of course is that shrinking a pancreas cancer is like moving a freight train down the tracks. You put your back into it, you get it pushed, and you start moving it. And just because you let go doesn't mean it stops. There's an inertia to it. It's going to keep shrinking even though you stop putting your back into it, which begs the question, what would the response rate be if the control arm wasn't sugar pill but continued chemotherapy, continued 5-FU as a single agent, continued two more months of a full Firinox, or continued full Firinox if they're tolerating well indefinitely, would the response rate have been 10%? I don't think so. Would it have been 20%? I don't think so either. I think it would have been 30 or 40%. I think Olaparib wouldn't just have failed to demonstrate survival benefit. I think it would have proven itself to be a harmful strategy that kills people over the standard of care, which is not to stop chemotherapy. So I think this trial is super bad. It's so bad. you couldn't beat, You couldn't beat sugar pill. You're having responses on sugar pill that tells you the chemo was working. You just needed to give more of it. Why on earth did you stop it? What were you thinking? That's what I think it's telling you. So polo trial. You take a drug that's normally not halted, and you randomize people to a new costly toxic pill or placebo. You measure an endpoint progression-free survival that's a surrogate endpoint. It doesn't correlate with what people feel or function. It's not a measure of what matters. Historically, actually, it was never used in pancreas cancer before this because, as I've shown you, you don't have to wait for survival. You've already got the survival estimate. You don't even need a surrogate. You got what you need. You don't improve overall survival. Quality of life was not better. So what do you think this FDA does? What do they do with this? a month medication. The control arm is arguably delinquent. It's beneath the US standard of care. There's evidence that these people were responding to chemo and they probably would have kept responding. Um, The the drug has no survival benefit. Uh, It has real toxicity. Uh, What do they do? On the question of whether Olaparib has a favorable risk-benefit profile, the ODAC votes narrowly in favor, seven to five. And the answer is, heck yeah. Because pancreas cancer's risk is ultimate. Heck yeah. So here we are. Polo trial. Did the giant crumble? Did we let out a scream of joy? Is it a heck yeah approval? Or is it actually the approval of a $12,000 a month medication? Is it actually approval of a $12,000 a month medication? that could not improve survival. And by the way, it also didn't improve quality of life. That's been published since then in the JCL last year. Doesn't improve quality of life. Doesn't improve survival. It costs a lot of money. It has real toxicity. And it probably would have been worse than what I was actually doing in my clinic. Should it change clinical practice? We wrote in cancer. No, it shouldn't. Should it have been approved by the FDA? No. And as somebody's writing in the chat, how could the IRB allow this? And maybe I'll just say, you know, I mean, the reason the IRB allows this is that this is a trial that's run at like many, many sites. And if you're one of the many, many sites, individual IRBs at Harvard or OHSU or UCSF or wherever, Texas, we don't have a lot of incentive to to put up a roadblock at one of the many sites. It's got an IRB approval everywhere else. The company's going to run it wherever they want to run it. If we say no, they're just going to run it at other sites. The people on the IRB, unfortunately, may not know all the stuff about pancreas cancer that I'm telling you. No one is coming to the IRB to present it the way I'm presenting it because I'm also presenting it in a certain way that I think makes it easiest to digest by somebody who's not an oncologist by explaining to you what PFS is. I think most oncologists actually don't know the story about Charles Moore and where response comes from. Um, I think it's easy to just let it go through. Um, and and if you put up a roadblock at one center, I'm not sure you're going to do anything to stop it. And so I I think... You know, I, I do find it problematic. I mean, I think I've called this an unethical trial, delinquent that the control arm was harmed, um, and I think IRB should have halted it. But I but uh, it's not an alone example. I'm going to show you, and and I think that some of these structural problems do exist, and that's why we have so many bad trials. Let me show you another one. <clears throat> can it get worse than that? Can it get wor- Can it get worse than Bolo? Uh It always does. You know, it always does. Um, dropout. Um, I was minding my own business one day when I saw the New England Journal of Medicine had a new paper and it was about lutetium PSMA 617. I said, oh my God, what the hell is that? It sounds sounds super interesting. And in fact, the first thing I do is obviously I Google search a cartoon of what it does to know what it does. And here is this radioisotope lutetium. It's from that bottom part of the periodic table. I didn't even memorize that low. I, couldn't even, I don't even know what's down there. And it's tethered to prostate-specific membrane antigen, this particular PSMA that they think is like, uh, that, that's expressed on prostate cancer cells. It goes into the body. It binds to the prostate cancer. It goes in, of course, it's taken up by the body. And then, boom, the lutetium detonates the cell. Boom, blows it all up. And it's like amazing. And it's like just crushes prostate cancer. And indeed, it is very active. Actually, it, it really does crush a prostate cancer that overexpresses PSMA. It's pretty good at, at, at shrinking the cancer. Okay? So, I mean, I don't doubt, I don't doubt that. I'm not, I'm not saying this is a bad drug. I'm just saying this is a bad trial. I'm about to talk about the trial. Here's the study. Lutetium-177, PSMA-617. New England Journal paper catches my attention. It's got everything everyone wants to, wants to talk about. They take 1,000 people and they put them in that PSMA PET scanner. It's a new PET scanner. My God. They invented a new type of PET scan just for this cell surface protein, the PSMA PET. And, like, when you see it in a prostate cancer patient, it, like, lights up like a Christmas tree. I mean, it's, like, super sensitive. It looks amazing. It's, like, the progress. You know, 1,000 people, they scan them. 831 had PSMA, like, overexpressing disease. And they randomized them. And, again, once again, two-to-one randomization. I wish we we could talk about this in the the time at the end because I think there's some issues there alone. Uh, 385 get lutetium PSMA. 196 get standard care. Standard care. I mean, it's the standard that you would give them, right? So they're getting standard care, and they're measuring everything that matters. Progression-free survival, 0.4. Look at that, that hazard ratio. My God. Three months goes to eight months. This is amazing. Look, it's like so much better than standard care. Standard care looks like a roller coaster ride. Looks terrible. Everyone progresses very quickly after starting in standard care. A standard doesn't sound good to me. And look at overall survival. Here they have an overall survival benefit, okay? I can't quibble about this. Look at this. You can fit three laser pointers. This is huge. It's a big OS benefit, four month benefit. I mean, okay, but hazard ratio 0.62. That's pretty good for us in oncology. We're happy with this. This, like, that cartoon told you everything you need to know. This is a powerful drug. So, what's the problem? What is the problem? I ask myself. Is there a problem? nothing everyone is cheering i mean the the my emails are blowing up you know every oncology publication says this is like a new standard the vision trial is the vision for the future it's amazing um <clears throat> uh, oh so somebody's asking about polo did they exclude people who responded to chemo uh actually no polo was you could only be in it if you responded to chemo or had stable disease on chemo And uh, the fact that 10% were responding after they stopped the chemo tells me there was a lot of chemo-sensitive disease in that study still. uh, And it would have been, you know, they would have deeper response with more chemo. Okay, what's the problem with this lutetium? What does standard care mean? Standard care could not include cytotoxic chemotherapy. Wait a second. That's kind of the backbone of prostate cancer care. It couldn't include systemic radioisotopes like radium-223. That's odd because radium was approved like 10 years earlier. It couldn't approve. It couldn't include immunotherapy or drugs that were investigational when the trial was designed. Uh, when the trial was designed. So even if these drugs were approved after the fact, it couldn't be there as a control arm. But to me, the cytotoxic chemotherapy was problematic to exclude that. Why are you excluding that? That's like what I would want to do. What are you permitting? permitting therapies included but we're not restricted to abiraterone and enzalutamide okay those are two good drugs bisphosphonates uh, that's kind of like a supportive drug radiation therapy um, it's not going to extend your survival it's going to help with pain denosumab again or you know a rank ligand uh, like a bisphosphonate equivalent glucocorticoids glucocorticoids this is well, that's like i don't treat my prostate cancer patients with glucocorticoids cuz i'm not living in 1953 i'm living in 2023 i treat them with docetaxel and cabazitaxel And I treat them with radium-223 if they have a lot of bone disease because I'm living in 2023. So this is like very antiquated to me. The other thing I knew is that abiraterone and enzalutamide, they work great, but they don't work great if you've already gotten the other one. If you get enzalutamide and then I give you abiraterone, it works very, very poorly. It barely works at all. And if you get abiraterone and then I give you enzalutamide, it works slightly better, but also very poorly. And if you've gotten both of them before, and I give you one of the, uh, one or the other, it don't work at all. So these are very ineffective if you've already gotten them. What does Table 1 tells me? Table 1 tells me that if people who've gotten the androgen receptor pathway inhibitors like Enza and Abby, 55% got one, 39% got two, and 6% got more than two. What the hell are you talking about? They're getting more than two and we're giving it again? I mean, this is really crazy I would want to be giving these people docetaxel and cabazitaxel. In fact, most of the people got docetaxel, but only half had gotten cabazitaxel. So you could have given them cabazitaxel instead. In fact, 60% of them, that's probably what I'd want to do. And we know actually cabazitaxel in this exact setting has already shown a survival benefit over giving more of the same drugs in the CARD study in the New England Journal just from a couple years earlier. We knew that you should give them cabazitaxel if they haven't gotten it already but you got to give them the same drugs. So this is what we call the choice of control group in randomized trials. Are we testing trivialities? We wrote this in the Lancet maybe five, six years ago because we think that the FDA is allowing them to test things that are highly beneath the best available standard of care in the U.S., highly beneath what we're doing in the U.S. Strawman control arms in... JAMA Oncology, led by Talal Hilal, we analyzed all of the FDA drug approvals and we argue that one in five times they use suboptimal controls. Here it is suboptimal controls by tumor type. The dark bar is the optimal control, like that was an option. The, the short, the, the light bar is the suboptimal control. And in genotourinary trials, suboptimal control arm trials are one in five. You know, um, I'm sorry, it's one third in this, it's one in five in the whole cohort. One-third of these studies are suboptimal controls. The control arm is not what you would do in your practice. And the control arm is flawed. In this study, we use a definition. The practice had to change one year before the trial launched. We're using a very conservative definition in this paper. We're saying, was this not the standard of care even the months before you launched? And the answer is, one-third of the time, it's not. And that's what's happening here in the VISION trial. Okay, so there's one very interesting thing that happened here. Because the patients who go on this study, who have already gotten Enza or Abby or both and are asked to get Enza or Abby and are not allowed to get cabazitaxel, well, they start to smell that there's a rat. They smell that there's a problem. And in fact, this is what the manuscript says. Quote, After the trial started, a high incidence of withdrawal from the trial was noted in the control group at certain sites and attributed principally to patient disappointment they were disappointed they got the control arm after discussion with regulatory authorities we implemented enhanced trial site education measures on march 5th 2019 to reduce the incidence of withdrawal enhanced trial site education what the heck is that enhanced education this is what are they doing this in Guantanamo bay what is this what are they doing and actually it says more the percent of patients in the control group who quit when they knew they were assigned the control arm, which I'm arguing is beneath the standard of care, was 56%. It's a randomized study, but if you get randomized in one arm, half of them say, get the hell out of here, I'm not doing this. Before the implementation of the brainwash, I mean, enhanced education, not brainwashing, enhanced education, and 16% of them quit after the enhanced education. Whereas only 1.2% of the people who got assigned to lutetium PSMA, that cool, sexy new drug quit. So there's a huge imbalance in dropout because people are crushed that they have to get some terrible treatment when there are better treatments available. That's why they're dropping out in the control arm. And I've never seen dropout like this. I'm going to show you. Okay, <clears throat> how can I prove to you I've never seen dropout like this? It's a little, bit a, a little bit of an aside. But we have looked at many, many Kaplan-Meier plots of cancer drugs. And we know how many people drop out at every single time interval. And how do we know this? We know this because maybe about 10 years ago, when you looked at a Kaplan-Meier plot, it just told you the number at risk at every time point. It tells you the number at risk below the, ta- the legend. But it doesn't tell you how many people are censored at each time point, how many people are there in whom we no longer have data on them because they stopped coming in for scans. It doesn't tell you that in the plot. Until Tito Fojo from Columbia petitioned David Collingridge at Lancet Oncology to make the company include this number. Before, you could get the number. You could subtract the uh, the point estimate, or you could subtract, you know, where the Kaplan-Meier plot is. You can assume, okay, this many people had an event. This many people are still at risk. The remainder must be censored. You could assume that, but now Tito made them directly report that in the plots, and so now all the Lancet journals report the number censored at every time interval, which has been awesome for researchers who want to study this. So what we did was we scraped all of these numbers and we did a paper on it. That's the paper I'm showing you. So we know the actual number of people censored because if you drop out right when you sign up, you're going to have to be censored in that plot at the first time interval because you just dropped out so you're not getting any more scans. Okay, so I know how censored. This is a plot of every dot is a study that was appeared in the Lancet journal and it's showing you at the first time interval exactly what we care about, how many people are censored and if there's an imbalance in censoring, the percentage censored. So the y-axis is the sample size of the study. There's like one mega study, and there's many, many studies in the hundreds. Okay, it's typical oncology. In one trial, there's a lot more people censored in the intervention arm, and I think that's because the drug is very toxic, and when you give the drug, a lot of people throw it in your face, and they quit the study because the side effects are so nasty, and so you have an imbalance in censoring in the intervention arm which means that the resultant Kaplan-Meier estimate averages the people in whom you have followed, and those people are no longer uninformatively censored. Those people are likely to be, in my opinion, the healthiest people, so it'll pull up that average because these people who throw in the towel are probably the sickest and oldest and frailest who are most likely to be knocked out with the chemotherapy toxicity. On the other side, you have one trial where there's a massive amount of quitting on the control arm, and I think that's patient disappointment, And the average, weighted average, is actually a slight weighted average towards patient disappointment. Patients, I think, are disappointed when they get control arms, and they slightly, you know, slightly are more likely to quit in the control arm. That's what we know. This trial was Quisartinib, and actually the FDA rejected it. They said so many people dropped out on the control arm. To be honest, it's not even really a randomized study anymore, is it? The purpose of randomization is to equilibrate the outcome distribution in the absence of therapeutic effect, but if in one arm, 15% of people quit, and those people are not quitting at random, then of course, it's no longer really randomized. It's kind of like an observational study, and you have to correct for that. But what about the vision trial, the one I just showed you? Where is that on our plot? The answer is it didn't include, it didn't come in our data set, but I plotted it for you right here. Here it is. It's off the charts. It's off the charts. 56% of people are quitting in one arm over the other. This is the, actually the difference in quitting. It's like 54%. And after the... Um, uh, brainwash. I mean, enhanced trial site educate. Enhanced trial site education. It goes down to twelve percent. It's off the charts. It's off the charts because we've never had a trial where so many people come and tell the investigators your control arm is frankly dereliction of medical your medical duty, and I cannot participate. Especially when I can go get cabazitaxel. I can easily go get cabazitaxel. Why the hell do I want to take drugs I've already taken and that will not work for me? And that's what you see here. Unbelievable amount of censoring. And remember, Quisartinib did not get approved with 16%. This is even worse. Even worse. The rationale for the exclusion of certain treatments was that the safety profile of these therapies had not been tested in combination with lutetium PSMA. The trial aimed to assess the efficacy of lutetium PSMA plus standard therapy that could be provided safely. So that's why we had to exclude a second. And then the uh, patients who received one taxing were ineligible if they were deemed at baseline. Oh, this is the next part. So they say we can't combine it with the other drugs, but that's only because the company didn't do the phase one studies. They could have done it. Nothing stopped them from doing it. And then the other thing is, you didn't have to combine lutetium PSMA with the drug. You could have just done lutetium PSMA versus a fair standard of care. You didn't have to combine it. Who told you you had to combine it? You invented that idea. You didn't have to. The next thing they say is patients who received one taxane were ineligible if they were base, if they could have received a second. In other words, you could not have been on this study Uh, Yes, it's not. Somebody's asking, is it a blinded study? It's not blinded. It's a radioactive isotope. So they claim they can't blind it. And I think there's some truth to that. Because you could take a, apparently somebody said you could take your iPhone and hold it to your body and the iPhone's like light sensor can tell if it's, uh, if you're emitting uh, radioactivity. So that even if they did do double dummy and put you in that lead room and all that stuff, you would still be able to figure it out with your phone. So they say they couldn't blind it. So yeah, they know. They're like, oh, you got assigned the control arm and we tell you. And you get so angry, you, fought, you know, one or two people throw it, throw, throw the consent form back in my face and say, see and they peace out. They leave. Um, so that's why they're leaving. But it's also because the investigators are picking a control arm that is so bad. If the control arm was really the best available care outside of the study, they would have no reason to leave. That's the best care they could otherwise get. They could be disappointed, but they'd have no reason to throw the towel in your face. Now here they're saying, you couldn't have been in this study if the doctor thought you could get cabazitaxel. So the doctor has to really believe that's not an option for you. But that is contradicted by their own table that shows that when they leave the study, 20% of them are getting the cabazitaxel that you said they could not get when they started. So really, you're kind of making that up, I think. Okay, wait, let me summarize this in a succinct way. What are the problems with this study? The problem isn't that the drug has activity. The problem is that they purposely pick the straw man control arm. The problem is that the patients who participate know they're picking the straw man control arm. They are quitting in record number because you're not giving them a drug that has already proven a survival benefit. You say you're not giving them that because you can't add your drug to it, but that's only because you didn't study the addition, and that's also contradicted by the fact you didn't have to be an add-on therapy. You could be in in lieu of therapy. This is actually so potent, you probably still might have won. And the FDA historically does not approve trials where there is this much imbalance in censoring because really they're no longer randomized. The people who are quitting are not... The poor person enrolling on the trial in like an Eastern European nation with no other options for healthcare, the person quitting is the person at the higher income nation center where they have access to other drugs. I mean, that's just the nature of the people who are quitting. And so it is a, it's an imbalance that has to do with outcome. Okay, so we wrote this up in European urology, limitations of the vision trial. I actually do think this drug is actually, it's not like polo to me. It actually, it, it, it should have a role, but this trial certainly doesn't justify it. And um, we did a podcast on it, and the point, I, the reason I show this is, um, our podcast was listened to by seventeen thousand people, which has got to be pretty much everybody who's interested in this. To- I mean, this is not, that's more people than who are interested in this topic. There's nobody interested in this topic, and every one of them listened to these problems, uh, which I think is, imp- which shows the important role of alternative media. Okay so what do these two things So, drop out but yet uh, and the the part i left out was what did the fda do of course surprise surprise they approve the product they approve the product yeah they like to approve the products in fact they use approving products as the benchmark of whether or not they're doing a good job i like to know whether or not you know any of these things are actually work and just because a drug is active doesn't tell me when and how i should give it i still don't know all right last part real world data this may generate the most interest but you know i mean people who follow me will know i have a problem with two things i mean i have a problem with a perpetual booster campaign that never that has no randomized data anymore we haven't done randomized data powered for clinical outcomes in some time bivalent vaccines were debuted based on mouse antibody titer data we're using real world data to validate our authorizations but the people who rush to get the bivalent booster are not the same as the people who don't rush to get it they're different in other ways in fact The Canadians have a study that show people who are unvaccinated are less, are more likely to get into car accidents. Is that because vaccines prevent car accidents? No, it's because they're different in other ways. People who really love to jump on the booster bandwagon are different in other ways. So you really do need randomization, as I'm going to show you in this analysis of some real world evidence. Paxlovid, people may know. I have no problem with Paxlovid in an unvaccinated person at high risk of COVID. I know the New England Journal Paper Epic HR, the reduction in absolute risk is from 8 to 2%. That's amazing. What I have a problem with is va- Paxlovid in vaccinated people. Epic SR is a negative study, and we have no data on Paxlovid in vaccinated double boosted 20 or 30 year olds, and yet I personally know many who are taking Paxlovid. This is an ultra low risk population. Why are they taking this drug with no evidence, and why did the FDA allow it? To get full marketing authorization with no positive randomized data to date in any vaccinated cohort, uh, the UK panoramic study is going to come in soon. And if that is negative, this is going to be a damning revelation. It's going to be tens of billions of dollars in healthcare spending for that don't work. And I think the last point is somebody has already done a cost-effectiveness back-of-the-envelope calculation showing that even if it does work, it's going to be like $500,000 per hospitalization averted. It's unlikely to be cost-effective, but I suspect it might not even work. We don't know. This, to me, is not good regulatory science, um, and we're not in the same state of emergency as we were in 2020, so I do think the, the standards should be higher. Let me give you a quick example. Our time is running out. <clears throat> you know, part of this talk is going to show you how good are real-world evidence and target trials at recapitulating randomized studies, but I want to make a couple broader points about real-world evidence used to answer clinical questions. This is a woman with breast cancer. It's in the breast. This is a woman with metastatic breast cancer. It's spread to other parts of the body. And this is the progression of breast cancer, unfortunately. If the breast cancer is confined to the breast, we know there's a benefit to removing the breast. That's, that's been known for, you know, since, since Halstead, the days of Halstead. But if the breast cancer has already spread to your lungs or your liver or your colon, we have always wondered, could, is there still a benefit for removing the breast? People like me say the horse has left the barn. That would be crazy to do. But some surgeons say, actually, we should do it. And because the primary breast is still a place that's seeding metastases, and also it causes, you know, it could, that could be the cause of death, the primary site itself, which is, I think, rare. But okay, asterisk. This is not about the primary site as a cause of morbidity, like uh, being painful and weeping. This is about removing the primary to improve overall survival in people with metastatic cancer. That's the question. Does it improve the survival? And if you, yeah, if we remove the breast mass in metastatic cancer, is overall survival increase? That's the question. And the answer is, if you do a meta-analysis of observational study, you will find it does. In fact, it works really well. This is a plot of many, many studies showing the benefit of surgery in metastatic stage four disease of the primary breast. And you can see, you know, pretty consistent benefits. You know, and, and, um, This is an analysis of, I think, 35,000 people in this. It's real-world data for, I'll I'll show you in a minute, 20 years. Then finally, maybe a few years ago, the folks in Tata Memorial Hospital in Mumbai, India, they did a randomized control trial. The same question that we have had so many observational studies on. And here's the result, overall survival. Not a lick of difference. Removing the primary after the horse has left the barn does not improve survival. That's what I would have guessed that's what the randomized study shows there's actually two randomized studies that show the same thing now okay so you know it's easy to say the observational studies got it wrong okay that's easy that's i think that's not the interesting thing to me what's interesting is the comparison Twenty eight thousand people were in that pooled meta-analysis i showed you versus the randomized trial took only 350 people the observational studies accrued for 35 years people were doing it for 35 years the randomized trial took really long it took 10 years it was running one hospital in mumbai in mumbai india but it was still 10 years it was a third the time really it was actually a little faster the cost actually of the observational data set was 500 times more to generate why because you had to do the surgery on thousands more people and that surgery has a cost So even though there's a cost to randomize people, even though we say it's horrific, like 20 or 30 Gs per person, the cost to actually just implement a practice and let it run for 35 years is 500 times the cost of doing the study. And the percent of women who were ultimately exposed to the incorrect intervention surgery in this observational study was 15,000, and here it was 170. So in my point is observational studies, I think, fail on several metrics. One, they failed on reliability. It was unreliable conclusion. Two, they weren't cheap. Actually, it was more expensive. Three, it wasn't fast. Actually, it was slower because of the uncertainty was lingering. And four, they actually failed because they actually assigned more people to the ultimately futile intervention before we rendered a result. So actually, they failed by all the metrics. Cheap, uh, uh, sorry, reliable, cheap, fast, and few. Okay, and that's the topic of a paper I wrote called Reliable, Cheap, Fast, and Few. Okay, you're gonna say this is an anecdote. So I'll just conclude by showing some data. Um, You know, when you actually do, there's a long history, and I won't bore you with it, but it goes back to 2000 in the New England Journal of Medicine where uh, Benson and Hartz and then John Concato and Ralph Horowitz, um, they compared observational studies to randomized trials on the same clinical question. Uh, They initially found pretty decent concordance. As time went on, this is, I think, David Kent and colleagues from uh, Tufts University, Jam, I think, 2010, uh, you know, there's some discordance here. These are the each dot is one axis is the observational study relative risk, the other axis is the randomized relative risk. If they were perfect concordance, they'd all fall on the dotted line, but there's some discordance. Um, another way to look at it is this is the largest analysis by Daniel Spratt and colleagues from oncology. The way I like to look at it is divided into quadrants. Like this is the quadrant where observational study says it works, randomized trial says it works. Observational study says it's harmful. Randomized trial says it's harmful. These are the other quadrants where there's discordance. Um, 40% of the time, the matched pairs were in the blue, and 60% they were in the discordant. I think that, to me, is a problem. A coin flip would probably be 50-50. Um, then the last thing I'll say, because I want some time for questions. So, uh, somebody did this prospective... Oh, I'll skip this, okay. That's uh not... The last thing I say is the target trial. I mean, you know, there's the F- FDA-sponsored RCT duplicate. Um, Sebastian over there is, is is running it. It's a really brilliant effort, and I I commend them. Um, I think this is the way we're going to validate target trials or not. Uh, so far, I think we should just point out that with a sample with a small sample size of ten, um, the target trial framework can only validate six of ten, um, and that might not be where we need it to be to really uh, move forward in regulatory science. uh, I'm willing to use target trials. I just need the concordance to be a little bit better than it is now. And I do worry that even if we do use them, what that will mean is we're going to debut things at scale, and we're still going to have the problem of many, many more people exposed to ultimately ineffective products. And it may even take longer, and it may even cost more. And I've done some modeling on that in that paper I described earlier. So I'm sorry for going a little longer than I wanted. I'll stop now, and I take questions for five minutes.
1: Number of attendees, um, and while we wait for additional questions, I have one fairly overarching question for you, Renee, which is: I think you made a strong case for why the current system has gaps or flaws or, or more than that, depending on how you you want to frame it. But what is then the potential role for the post-marketing activities to correct that, or? to help get things back on track if you feel that the FDA is inappropriately using approved products as the benchmark for success. And related to that, could this alternative media that you pointed to be one of the avenues that draws attention to this and maybe helps right-side
0: some of these decisions that you think are inappropriate? Those are great questions. Um. For the first thing, I mean, I think there are many things we can do post-market. I was a big fan of Medicare being very tough on Adjuhelm, uh, the Alzheimer's drug. I think using payment as a cudgel for bad evidence is fair and reasonable, and we can incentivize good evidence. I mean, a few years ago, we were interested in coverage with evidence development, i.e. Medicare would pay for it, but only within the confines of a randomized study for some FDA devices that came to market um, with scant evidence. I think there's still a role for that. Uh, you know, my bias, of course, is I still prefer randomized evidence being used even in the post-marketing setting. I would love for accelerated approvals to come with, uh, we've already accrued the randomized study. We may not know the results, but we've accrued it. We're going to let that run, but meanwhile, we'll give you an accelerated approval. I love the idea of um, that, uh, that, that CMS would be able to pay less for accelerated approvals to incentivize manufacturers to develop more evidence. But one of the points I want to make is that we have found that half of FDA's regular approvals that don't have further efficacy requirements do use surrogate endpoints. So the problem is is beyond, I think, the accelerated approval problem. And then finally, I do think real world evidence has a role. It can show you things like egregious things that don't add up, like for instance, you know if, if in a clinical trial people take the drug for um, seven months and in the real world we start giving it to people and they take it for less than one month it tells you there's a huge gap between efficacy and effectiveness it tells you a gap between the populations so we can start to look at those drugs more critically um, but i do think there's an important need for that kind of stuff but then finally i would just say just to put the buck back with the fda i mean they do get to decide what the control arm is they do get to decide what the endpoint is for me reading a trial like Polo. I ask myself, as somebody asked here, you know, what is going on? You know, why are we allowing them to test against placebo? And that's not a thing. I mean, that's not a thing we do. Nobody's doing that. I'm pretty sure that the people who enrolled on the study outside of study, they never did that in their practice. Um, So that, to me, is a place where FDA needs to be firmer. Um, And I I would encourage them to do that. Let me uh, touch on one question
1: here in the the Q&A. Ah, Tony's, okay. Yeah. better educate clinicians. I don't know about patients, it's a complicated topic and many may not have that type of uh, sort of expertise, but certainly clinicians, right, potentially influencing their patients' decisions around participation.
0: Yeah, so I think that, um, that uh, uh, you know, there's that old saying, which is like, um, People would be happy if, if the doctor really didn't know. They'd be happy if the doctor gave drug A or drug B, but they'd be damned if they'd be randomized A versus B. You know, like so that's the human intuition. We're kind of averse to randomization. Um, and uh, I also think it's interesting that you know the ancient Greeks never thought about randomization. We didn't develop it until you know the 1940s. Um, how, how we can help? I think one of Calvin's points is that if if you couldn't get anything better outside of the study. I think you would have less incentive to really throw in the towel. I mean, if you if there was no cabazitaxel and if abiraterone/enza was really the best thing you could get outside of the study, in I don't think you would have seen 56%. And I know that because we've looked at many many studies, and nobody has that high a rate. So it's, it's in part because they know it's, they're disappointed, but also in part they know they can get something better. So that to me reflects a failure of the trial. But then I think if the trial's control arm really is the best available standard of care, then I do think clinicians should feel comfortable reassuring the patient and saying, look. You're participating in this. It's gonna yield important medical knowledge. And at a minimum, you're not getting anything worse than what you would have gotten if you weren't on this study. And if you drop out right now, we're just gonna give you what you're assigned to anyway. And I think that's an important message to say as well.
1: and he will be speaking on analyzing biotech clinical trials. So a nice follow up to our topic today. Today, thank you so much and thank you everyone for joining today.
0: Thanks for having me.